Welcome to episode 14 of season 2 of the Search with Canada podcast, recorded on Wednesday the 13th of April 2022. My name is Jack Chambers and I'm joined by Mr. Mark Williams-Cook and today we'll be talking about Google, Know Your Data, Hannah Rampton's Search Console Explorer version 2 is now live, updates on trends and Primark's recent migration from Systrix, Google Multi-Search and Google's stanch on AI-generated content. Search for Canada is supported by Systrix, the SEO's toolbox. Go to systrix.com SWC if you want to check out some of their excellent free tools, such as SERP snippet validation, on-page analysis, href lang validation, page speed comparison, and tracking your site's visibility index. That's systrix.com SWC for free SEO tools, systrix.com trends for trendwatch, and systrix.com blog, and we'll actually be talking about a few of the latest blog posts and studies later on in the show. And we're remote again. Aren't we just? I don't know if you can tell, listeners, but we are not in the same room as we have been for all of season two so far. Mark and I are separate, unfortunately. We are we are separated. <laughs> this is the Search with Candor COVID edition. So <laughs> I had a great time at Brighton SEO. It was brilliant, but I got COVID again. So we are. Was it about having... six weeks after you had COVID the first time as well? It's a pretty quick turnaround for you, wasn't it? Little, little bit longer. Yeah, I had it in December, so, <laughs> so like three and a half months. Um, I was kind of hoping I'd wing it, but apparently not. But it was worth it, Kelvin. If if there isn't, if there isn't something, you know, a kind of a bigger compliment you can have about your conferences, I got COVID, but yeah, it was kind of worth it. He says. <laughs> but I, yeah, I didn't expect us to be uh, remote again. Uh, in 2020 style but here we are yeah speaking of 2020 style i think i have covid i'm still testing negative for the record but i originally had it in 2020 all the way back over two years ago at this point so yeah we think both of us have it there's a few people who have been to brighton seo uh, testing positive i've seen it going around on twitter as well so yeah but i think everybody had a good enough time in brighton SEO. like you said mark what's a bigger compliment to events organizer to say i got covid but it was worth it <laughs> yeah so um I mean, what were your what were your highlights? Let's talk about Brighton SEO just briefly before we we kick off. Yeah, I briefly touched on it last week because I recorded the intro after we'd been. But that was just me at home recording it as I was editing my main interview with Claire Kyler. Which, if you haven't checked out, listeners, please do go back and listen to last week's episode. Fantastic interview with Claire. And funny enough, Claire, as I said last week, was the first person we met at Brighton. Literally, as we walked in to check into our hotel room, there was Claire sat in reception. Welsh cakes waiting for us, ready to go. <laughs> I did love that, being greeted with Welsh cakes and seeing Claire. I was actually surprised the amount of people that came to Brighton SEO bearing gifts. I got a very nice new D20 from Jamie Indigo. So thank you very much for that. Jammer Vaults on Twitter, appreciate that. Um, yeah, and a couple of other kind of random things given to me, which was cool. Got to meet the people from Keyword Insights. So Andy Chadwick, Sugathan and Nina absolute pleasure to meet them we should probably get them on the podcast as well because i've talked about their tool a few times uh keyword insights about primarily kind of keyword clustering which is a big task in seo so it'd be really good to get them on any talks you particularly liked 
Uh, yeah, definitely. There was quite a few interesting things. One that really stood out to me was Jess Peck's one about how to build your own crawler and why you should build your own crawler. Basically talking about Python and if you've ever run into any issues with, you know, some of the the pre-book crawlers we all know and love here on Search with Canada. We, you already know Sightbulb from previously sponsoring the show. You know Screaming Frog. Everybody knows that kind of stuff. But maybe there's something you aren't quite getting from those crawlers that you think, like, actually, this would be really useful. And even just to get a better understanding of how these things work and how crawlers understand the sites that you're working with and stuff like that. It was a really interesting talk from Jess about how to actually build your own crawler using Python and going through that process and kind of I'm I'm really inspired to kind of get stuck into Python a bit more and really have a look at that. And that was definitely one of my highlights from day one, for sure. Not surprised Jess did that. She is a fantastic person. It's funny, actually, that's one of the... I did that many, many years ago through in a tutorial in a Perl book, which was about building your own like mini search engine crawler and index. And when I went through that kind of tutorial and through that process, one thing that... I realized that I hadn't actually thought about too much is that so much of the HTML and code on the web is just broken. <laughs> and if you make a a crawler that's very kind of strict and, okay, I'll just follow this uh, kind of HTML and if it's correctly formatted, you're going to miss out huge chunks. And it really made me aware that to do a good job of actually crawling the web your um your agent that's out there kind of has to be like yeah i see what you're trying to do there i'll give <laughs> you the benefit of the doubt and uh and follow follow on i really enjoyed actually saying that um i saw i spent more time this this year talking to people um than seeing talks before so while some of the talks was going on i was, I was going and, and meeting people and uh i met summarized it on twitter but I, I met a lot of really good people especially that i've been speaking to quite regularly and that i don't hadn't been to brighton seo for a few years so quite a few i hadn't ever met in person pandemic as well um, one talk that that did stand out for me um was by a chap called harry sumner who did a, um, a talk on kind of forecasting and using facebook's profit and google's causal impact to take a more objective approach to what impact do we think these changes will have and then afterwards kind of doing the as as harry said it that i told you so of actually <laughs> saying this is the exact date when we made this change and this is um the the result we've seen from that and actually i i hadn't heard of those tools before so i'm obviously more focused specialism wise on kind of the technical seo stuff and less so on forecasting but i found that really Really interesting. Also enjoyed Azeem's talk. Um, so Azeem Digital has got a podcast as well. Really nice talk about um, just considering kind of channels and their importance. Uh, more strategic, but again, really, really enjoyed it. And I think I was saying to you, sometimes you see a talk about a subject maybe that you already know about and understand, but hearing someone else explain it in a different way makes you think about it differently yeah definitely i had that conversation a lot with our head of marketing brendan because spent a lot of time hanging around with brendan uh over the brighton seo period and we were kind of comparing notes from different talks and making sure we we each went to as many different talks between us at canda the, the four of us that went there uh for the whole time um and we're kind of comparing and contrasting like oh yeah make sure you go to this one and i'll go to this one so we can compare notes later on and brendan and i had that very similar conversation of like i kind of already knew that was a thing and 
my assumptions have been confirmed, but seeing it from a different perspective from the speaker or from, you know, talking to other people as well is really, really useful to actually be able to sort of bounce ideas off and get the I'm not going crazy, that is a thing, or oh yeah, I did think that and <laughs> turns out I, I was right. Or maybe proven wrong in in other cases. Like it's it's always good to be proven wrong as well. When you think you know something and it's like, actually no. That makes sense. That makes way more sense. I should be doing that instead of this and, and that kind of thing as well. A couple other ones I really want to uh, shout out as well in a in that similar kind of uh, vein as well. Uh, Steve from Conductor slash Content King, um, his talk on log file analysis was really interesting, despite the very loud heckler during the during the talk. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> Steve, dealt, dealt with very professionally, though. Yeah, Steve handled it very well. I actually managed to catch up with Steve afterwards and complimented on him on his heckling handling skills. So <laughs> that was good. But yeah, log file analysis is something I definitely want to um, get more into. I know loads of people are having problems with indexing stuff at the moment, and there's been a lot of issues going around the entire industry pretty much with very slow indexation and stuff like that. So having a better understand of log file in insights is how we put it. So basically being able to have that kind of really technical stuff be accessible to multiple departments across one company, which I think is something I kind of don't really think about. And I know something we've talked about at Canda a lot is having that interconnectivity between the development team and frames, like the sales team or the, the SEO team and the PBC team, having us all having the same access to the same data and Things like log file analysis can be useful for people across a, across a company, across departments, across clients, however you want to word that. And it was really interesting from Steve kind of talking about how to be able to make that more digestible, basically not just throwing a CSV file at, at a bunch of people who don't know what log files look like. Here you go, have fun. But actually being able to kind of process that and digest that. And, and that's something that Content King does. I know on their, their for their premium users, you're able to then access that and, and go through and kind of present it in a more manageable way. If you have, you know, managers who are less technical or or clients who are less technical, you're able to then present that information. And I thought it was that was really interesting because log file analysis is something I've dipped my toes in a couple of times, but never really kind of had the time to really spend and, and share it with other people and go through it. So credit to steve there for sure i think it's certainly more important now we're losing kind of fidelity on certain analytics data um, and sites are getting more complex as well so i have i i was kind of thinking maybe there would be less of a need for technical seo over the years because google's getting smarter which it is but it, it seems that as a web community, we can create problems faster <laughs> than they can be fixed. Like, hey, we've built this new super complicated JavaScript framework, which does all these really clever things and also makes it incredibly difficult for crawlers. So, yeah, um, it's always always a good thing to, as you say, be able to dip your toe into and especially communicate that because it can get fairly complicated fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um last couple of highlights uh beth barnum's talk on advanced schema implementation was really good as well uh again schema is something i've kind of dipped my toes in a few times but never properly uh kind of gone through from from square one to full implementation and all that kind of stuff and best way of presenting it was full of humor and making it again making it accessible to people who maybe know less about schema but also going into real high level kind of advanced technical stuff by the end of the talk there as well so yeah really really enjoyed beth barnum's talk on advanced schema implementation as well and perhaps most importantly i beat you at mortal Kombat, mark oh come on let's talk about street fighter <laughs> oh yeah you've beaten me tw what 25 times in a row on street fighter i think 
Something and like I that. would like to say this was a flavor of Mortal Kombat I'd never played before. <laughs> I think it was like Mortal Kombat 3 it Ultimate. Was, it was or 3 something. Ultimate, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah never yeah. never played it. And I knew you played it for because you're smashing out those special moves the second we sat down. <laughs> I feel the same way when you play Street Fighter 2. So. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> and you actually had a challenger of uh, not me, funnily enough, just just take you on and you smashed him as well. So yeah. there you go. Undefeated Bright Nessio Street Fighter 2 champion. Mark Williams Cook. Definite sign of a misspent childhood there. <laughs> so all those talks, um, Brighton SEO is going to be online 21st, 22nd of April. So all of the speakers also did a kind of home or office recording of their talk as well. So anything you missed, because sometimes the slides don't tell the story, you'll be able to access them online. <laughs> Okay, let's kick off with the actual things we were going to talk about now. <laughs> so there's a couple of uh, tools. Again, I love my tools. A couple of tools I want to mention to you. And the first went into beta actually about a year ago. It's from Google and it's just called Know Your Data. And it's at knowyourdata.withgoogle.com. I haven't got loads to say about this. This is their description to give you an idea about what it does. Know Your Data helps researchers engineers, product teams, and decision makers understand data sets with the goal of improving data quality and helping mitigate fairness and bias issues. So that might not mean a lot to you at a first read, but I think it's quite important because especially when you're dealing with things like machine learning. So I've been playing around the last couple of years with various different machine learning models. If you follow me on Twitter, you probably saw I went through a little phase of doing uh, generating art, quote unquote art with AI, with generative adversarial networks. And I found the hardest thing about anything I've played with, with machine learning models is getting good data in. Because basically, if you put crap in, you get crap out. And <laughs> The, the the thing that has been uncovered before now, especially when we're making these AI um, assistance for all sorts of things, like I've seen it in things like hiring, is that because we live in a world that has bias entrenched in it, we are feeding AI systems data that is inherently biased. Therefore, we are creating Frankenstein's monster of AIs that are have hardwired bias, racism, sexism, whatever built in, which is obviously super dangerous. I know that was brought up with some police database stuff not too long ago. Obviously, you know, us being two white guys, we're not going to talk about this from a uh, a place of understanding. But from from my perspective, looking at it from a data side of things, it was scary to see that how quickly like facial recognition technology and stuff is like, yeah, that went straight to racism. It's like, oh, oh, okay, people are terrible human biases are inherited by inherited into their the things that they create and now machines are learning to be racist <laughs> oh god people are terrible yeah. we're teaching the machines terrible things straight away yeah. and just quickly lean towards you know targeting people of color in certain ways and understanding women in different ways so like how how have the machines learned racism and sexism and stuff straight away ai for when you want to do terrible things at scale <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this is a well this is a well-known issue to 
people that professionally work within AI. Google has a quote-unquote responsible AI toolkit, which helps guide people through these issues. I think it's more of a problem for people who, like myself, who are not experts in, you know, data and using these models to make these errors without realizing they were in the data set. So a couple of things that Know Your Data does is um, it can look firstly outside of bias, it can look at data quality. So if you, if you had a set of, you know, a few million images, for instance, it can actually add additional metadata to that set of data by using machine learning itself. So for instance, I upload loads of stock photos, for instance, of people in the office. It can look at things like image sharpness and say, you know, 92% are, you know, high quality images and 8% are blurry. It can say um, 60% of these pictures contain headshots and only 20% of these pictures are of women, for instance. So it gives you a very quick way to have a bird's eye view of the data set that you've got, which is pretty much impossible for a human to do with sets when you're especially going into millions and the large data sets that you need to, to make machine learning models work, unless you're, you know, again, super skilled with whatever language it is where you're interrogating the data yourself and again that that's then falling onto very a very specialist skill set that maybe people using these models don't have it can then look at the bias side of things so again pointing out where for instance if you're doing some analysis like on wage differences for instance it can make sure that your data set is representative of the story you're trying to tell. Machine learning, I think, is becoming more accessible to us as marketers because we've got these pre-made models just served up to us and it's kind of like, hey, just put your data in and we can tell you stuff. And again, I think this is the little bit of knowledge is dangerous situation where suddenly you've got marketers without really understanding, you know, again, highly specialized subject, exactly how it all works, just putting stuff in, getting stuff out, and then running away with conclusions, campaigns, decisions based on that. So we'll put a link in the show notes, search.withcanada.co.uk. I think it would be a good idea for everyone, if you are using your own data sets, to have a think about that and use those kind of tools to make sure what you're getting out is good data, fair data, what you actually want to achieve. As you mentioned at the top of the show, Hannah Rampton has released her new version of Search Console Explorer. Funnily enough, we, we spoke about Brighton SEO. I actually met Hannah for the first time 12 years ago at the <laughs> at the second Brighton SEO. So she's been involved in search for over 15 years now. Really, really talented freelancer. And her Search Console Explorer is the second version of her data studio version of this tool. And I think the third or fourth version overall, because there was a Google Sheets version. So headlines are... This is a free tool, which is amazing. There is a 
link in the tool to donate kind of buy me a coffee type thing for Hannah. So if you do use it and it is useful to you, please do that because it, it provides, in my opinion, a huge amount of value. What it is, is essentially a Google Data Studio template that you can connect to your search console data. So why would you want to do this? There are lots of good reasons. So search console data is obviously really useful to us as SEOs, as marketers. It's some of the only kind of first party data we get directly from uh, directly from Google, but it's kind of slow to use through their interface. It's very one dimensional. You can kind of look at this one thing and Sometimes you can overlay, you know, very excitingly sort of a, a metric with a couple of filters, but it's very limited. It's even limited on from the interface, what you can export in terms of data. And what Hannah's tool does is plugs straight into your search console, you select your site, and it gives you this amazing visualized overview of all of the data. So you can literally explore the data and by that, it will immediately give you things like year on year or previous period over previous uh, period, clicks, impressions, CTR, like you have in the Search Explorer interface, but you can break it down into brand, non-branded, cumulative year on year. It's got kind of a, a bubble chart of all of your main search terms, their positions versus impressions. It's a tool that I use normally when we first if we're doing a pitch and we've got access or when we first land a client, I pipe their search console stuff through this tool because it, it will give me a really solid and fast orientation of what they've got, what it's ranking, how it's changed recently, what areas have particularly uh, changed as well. So there's a few different tabs in the sheet um, she's provided so you can explore this data you can export data from it which gets you around the 1k 1000 row limit it's got a specialized sheet to consolidate data to find cannibalization issues you've got um, tools in there to compare various date ranges over brand non-brand with geography overlaid on a map as well and i think one of the most popular features in there is there's an opportunities tab which is a really good way of summarizing all of those key phrases that have got high potential that maybe you're, you're tracking ranking like say third, fourth, fifth, tenth, whatever, where with a little bit of nudge, a little bit of a SEO nudge, you might be able to drive a lot more traffic. What I really like to do is just literally the explore section will show you the delta, the change of specific queries in terms of clicks and impressions. So if a client says to you, for instance, oh, okay, we you know help. We need help with our SEO. We've lost some rankings recently. I can immediately pull their data into Search Console, look at Explore, and then immediately see a group of these are the key phrases where they've lost clicks or lost impressions, and see if there is any any kind of pattern there in in topic um, or anything like that, which would be a lot trickier to do through the interface itself, or you've got again kind of data tooling limits if you export it yourself. So really pleased that Hannah's updated this. Absolutely fantastic tool. Cannot recommend it enough. And we'll put a link obviously in the show notes, search.withcanada.co.uk. And there are other tools on Hannah's site, which I will let you explore, which are also fantastic and very useful.
So we're at the midpoint in the show. Let's dive into some of the latest updates from Systrix. We have a fantastic post on the blog from Systrix talking about trends. And in fact, Steve and the team at Systrix had two very special guests, Nicole Scott and Lily Ray, who are both data journalists working with Systrix and analyzing trends and probably already heard their name if you've heard us talk about Systrix and Trendwatch and Indexwatch and all that kind of thing. And it's a really interesting interview with both of those people talking about what makes a trend, how do you detect a trend and kind of get ahead of the curve. Nicole's a particularly interesting example she has where she had built a site that really focused on news coverage and getting to trends before anyone else and built an amazing, completely organic backlink profile from that. It's a really interesting kind of delve into that side of SEO from both Lily and Nicole and and Steve kind of throwing questions at them about how you can bring expertise to your to your news sites and your coverage, structuring things to make sure you're getting that coverage, exiting trends once you've kind of then played the role and going towards evergreen content as well, coverage from all kinds of things. And like I said, we've touched on it a couple of times with Trendwatch, and this is basically exploring how the data journalist team over at Systrix come up with the facts and figures for data for the data for Trendwatch, for Indexwatch and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there is a link for that. I will put a link in the show notes. As we said, search.withcanada.co.uk. We can talk about that and then go through and look at the YouTube video, which is a, like I said, an interview with both Nicole and Lily conducted by Steve over at Systrix as well. Fantastic little piece there to kind of get you in the mood, get you in the zone for thinking about trends and how you might be able to create content around trending data and all that kind of stuff. And another interesting thing from Systrix, I know something Steve himself has actually been diving into and really looking at data, is the recent migration and update to the Primark website. For those of you who don't know, Primark is a very, very big clothing and kind of home brand here in the UK, kind of on the cheaper side of things, to say the least. And uh, it's pretty big. But famously, you cannot buy their stuff online. That has always been a thing for them. You have to go into the store. That was going to be my first question with the update. Can we buy online yet? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a weird one. And I think that's why Steve has kind of picked out as a particularly interesting example, is because... You can view availability in your local store, you can see prices for everything, but there is no option to actually buy anything. So it's an e-commerce site that you can't buy anything on, which is really weird to me. I I still don't fully understand. I'm sure Primark have their reasons, but I I have tried to buy stuff online on Primark a few years ago and then realized like, huh, that's not even an option. It's It's not a check availability thing. It's like there were no options previously. And now it kind of feels more structured like an e-commerce site there's they've completely restructured their category pages they've updated a lot of their database and completely restructured their libraries pretty much (laughs) and yeah it's a weird it's a weird weird thing i know you and i were talking about this a little bit earlier mark it's a weird thing to have an e-commerce site you can't buy anything on right that that seems like a weird choice to me and i'm 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 trying to think of as i've ever seen another example of a site this big and a brand this well known that have done something like this. Yeah, certainly. The the thing that interests me from the Systrix data was looking at their potential competitors and the Systrix was trying to summarize with the the search data so the things they're ranking for the intent. So someone like next.co.uk, huge online retailer, um way more search visibility at the moment than Primark and 
Systrix was saying kind of like 80% of the searches that they are ranking for are kind of quote unquote do intent, i.e. I want to go and onto this website and do something, i.e. buy something, you know, transact, like the normal thing people do with e-commerce sites, right? <laughs> and what I think is so interesting about this migration is, like you said, the Primark site is now structured just like an e-commerce website, but it doesn't have the add to cart button. <laughs> so I'm very interested to know how will Google react to a site that from any kind of heuristic method it could take of looking at content and structure and understanding looks like an e-commerce website is also from a known brand with lots of searches is like an entity is trusted but doesn't actually sell therefore I would say from common sense and from the data that Systrix has from an unbranded search point of view probably does not fulfill user intent so if someone in the UK is searching for something something Primark they probably know that they can't buy it online because that's in the UK that's like a big thing everyone knows that that you can't buy online from Primark it's kind of a running joke if it's an unbranded search for you know, fluffy socks or whatever, I'm probably expecting to be able to buy that thing online. So I'm really interested what's going to happen in terms of will Google work out that this site is not serving user intent and therefore it's never going to actually rank that well. Um, there's a few key hints for Google, Google obviously, that Primark won't be able to do things like provide a feed, a shopping feed, which would allow them into Google organic shopping results. And there's other you know, ways that we know Google does really smart things. Like if a page says out of stock, it will soft 404 it. So that we know they're looking for these on-page hints for can I, can I do the thing? Can I buy from it? That's going to be muddied, of course, by the will it prevent people linking to it as much because it's kind of not as helpful and online you can't just be like yeah you can buy that from here link it's like yeah you can look at that thing online and then just go to the you can shop check the availability <laughs> of your local store here like, great yeah. thanks so much doesn't have the, doesn't have the same <laughs> ring to it does it <laughs> go online and check the availability in your local store and then get the bus and go there mm. <laughs> so yeah that that's why i'm really interested in this in this as kind of like a, a case study if you like for what happens when you have a big brand that's kind of chameleoning its way into these other sites it looks like an e-com site smells like an e-com site but it doesn't quack like one so i'm interested to see how it's going to rank yeah there's a couple of quotes here touching on that branded versus unbranded side of things you just mentioned there mark there's some notes here from steve saying the problem with the primark website it simply doesn't rank well for anything other than its own brand only three percent of its ranking keywords are on page one and of those the vast majority of search volume is for primark related topics the branded search terms as we just mentioned the most successful non-brand ranking is for fluffy socks as you mentioned just now mark when you take a search with more search volume like jumpers for example the ranking success is typically page two and beyond effectively invisible if people are looking to buy jumpers or look at jumpers and talking about the structural changes as well i briefly touched on it going from a really kind of long url structure now redirecting to something that is much smaller and much 
much more manageable to the eye on your on your status bar you can really see that like there's a clear idea for building those redirects and restructuring the whole site but will google be able to spend the time to understand this and and steve would say well, spend a lot of watts and dollars trying to understand the new structure and how long will this kind of process take you know we've seen migrations take months and months to really pull through on on google side of things and could we see because primark is such a such a big big brand big site kind of pulling through there or as you said mark because it's not necessarily serving that that user intent will it actually be a slower process and google is less inclined to you know crawl index and everything like that compared to other similarly e-commerce sites like next as an example as well I'm very, very interested, and I know Steve is very keen to keep an eye on this, so this will be a live blog post that is going to get updated regularly as this ongoing process happens. As the data comes through from Systrix side of things, they can see all the rankings that are changing and the structure of the site changing as well. So we'll keep an eye on that, and I know Steve is very keen to keep an eye on that as well, and we'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well, so you can check out direct links to all that blog posts. Even if you're listening to this in a few weeks or in a few months, there'll be an updated version of that blog post with whatever is going on with Primark at the time as well. <laughs> and as a little tease, we should be having Steve from Systrix on the show in person in the Canda studios in a few weeks' time as well. So if you do have any questions about Systrix, if you have any questions for Steve, let us know on Twitter. And uh, yeah, we'll be chatting with Steve in a few weeks in person, our first in-person guest of season two. I'm very excited. That'll be awesome. Another person I can tick off my met in real life list <laughs> so while we were on our way down to brighton google announced google multi-search on their blog which is not to be confused with google's mum which is their multitask unified model so they sound similar. They actually do fairly similar things, but they are not equal. So to start, I guess, at the beginning, because I think it's worth explaining what their mum, their multitask unified model is, that is an, um, a piece of technology Google has been trying to roll out, and they're not there yet, which they describe as a thousand times more powerful than BERT. And in a nutshell, allows them to crawl, index, compare, and understand queries and results over different modalities, which is their posh word for things like text, images, video, and audio. So you could ask a question in text and they might find the answer within a video, or their final example in their blog post, which explains mum is you can take a photo of your shoes and say, could I hike Mount Fuji with these shoes? And it can take the different formats of your query, different modalities, and find you the kind of construct the answer for you. I think they use the term multi-search as is obviously much more easy to understand than the, than mum. <laughs> but the fact that they kind of address it in the, in the blog post, like we said, links in the show notes, search.wakanda.co.uk, the example they give there is take a photo, so you can use the Google app with Google Lens, take a photo of a product or a thing and type a color that you'd like to see that product in. So they use a yellow dress as an example here. And then you can also type green. 
and you type the, the word green with a word search in Google, a text search for Google, and an image search using lens. Combine the two and it'll give you examples of dresses that are green that look like that yellow dress you took a photo of, which is fascinating and cool mm. and something I think will be very, very useful to a lot of people going forward looking for, like you said, can, can I do this thing using this thing will be a really interesting way of like, I found this tool. I don't know what it is. It's in the bottom of my toolbox. I've forgotten what it does. How do I find it? Take a photo of it. What can I use this for? And it'll be like, oh, by the way, this is a type of Allen key or this is a type of, you know, old screwdriver that nobody uses anymore or whatever. I think it's really interesting that we can now or will soon be able to combine the two. And it's always felt fairly separate to me, you know, looking at image search, looking at text search on Google, and the fact that we're now kind of combining the two with multi-search. And I know they are really keen on pushing lens and stuff. <laughs> it's been a thing Google has been harping on for a while now. But the power of lens consistently amazes me. And the way it is just able to identify the weirdest, obscurest stuff out of nowhere is incredible. And this is just giving it even more and more power. Yeah, I've spoken about Lens to a lot of people, even just kind of outside of marketing, just because it's so useful for what is this trainer, what is this bug, what is this flower, <laughs> and it's amazing just how quickly Google's like, oh yeah, that's that's this. And what we were just talking about, so the multi-search thing, which Google has announced, is essentially they've just made a like manual version of, of what they're trying to do with Mum for one specific area, because they've said that really you want to focus your searches at the moment around fashion and home decor and specifically it says for best results shopping searches because I think that's the area where they know they have kind of the structured data that they need so for instance if you have a shopping feed and you upload a product you tell Google what colors it is available in so they can apply their kind of image matching algorithm which is already there and it already works really well and then you can essentially filter on data that they have that's structured i would guess and rightfully so that they're probably struggling to realize you know mum as a generic thing because that's massively complicated um and you know fo false positives you know always stick out like a like a sore thumb and when you try and roll out these kind of algorithms again it's limited as most new features are to English and again it's saying it's available in English in the US so the actual guide Google gives is to get started simply open the Google app on Android or iOS tap the tap the lens camera icon and either search one of your screenshots or snap a photo of something around you like a stylish wallpaper pattern at your local coffee shop who do they think we are then swipe <laughs> up and tap the plus to add your search button to add text and I would find that helpful anyway because a few times I've, I've you've been using reverse image search for, for years anyway but sometimes you need to sidestep because you're like it's almost got what I want but I have no way to point it in the yeah, right direction yeah, definitely. and that's what this does so I think it, it's potentially for, again for users really helpful and I think they're doing this just to kind of bridge the gap between them and the, the situation where they have this model that kind of just works generically with 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 everything
Okay, we're gonna end on one of my favorite subjects, which is AI content, because Google says AI generated content is against guidelines. So this topic was brought up in one of the recent Google Search Central SEO Office Hours Hangouts. And it was in response to a couple of questions about GPT-3, which we've spoken about many times now on the podcast, um, and the writing tools thus provided. And John Mueller, again, very helpfully gave some insight from Google's point of view. Is that in between taking selfies at Brighton SEO? That was in between taking thousands of selfies at Brighton SEO. <laughs> Poor John. <laughs> and he said, for us, these would essentially still fall into the category of automatically generated content, which is something we've had in the webmaster guidelines since almost the beginning. And people have been automatically generating content in lots of different ways. And for us, if you're using machine learning tools to generate your content, it's essentially the same as if you're just shuffling words around or looking up synonyms or doing translation tricks that people used to do those kind of things. So that's actually a big spammy trick that people used to do as well, which was scrape websites, translate them, republish them as well and, and kind of get traffic, especially for countries that had kind of lower SEO competition. It was, I know people had done that from English to say have websites in Thailand, things like that. Strong goes on to say, my suspicion is maybe the quality of content is a little bit better than the really old school tools, but for us, it's still automatically generated content. And that means for us, it's still against the Google Webmaster guidelines. So we would consider that to be spam. Fascinating. Mm. <laughs> for many reasons. So firstly, I know for a fact that many news websites for a long time use various methods to automatically generate content around things where we have nice easy structured data sources so whether it's stock prices or whether it's earthquake alerts it's very easy to say there was an earthquake at this time of this magnitude detected here breaking story kind of placeholder for someone else to come along and fill in the human bit of the content and that's that's technically AI doing yeah. that, right? It's not like GPT-3. And we're not talking about nobody websites. These are some of the biggest websites in the world, in the entire internet. <laughs> yeah. And it's because, you know, within the news cycle, the speed at which you publish is paramount to getting clicks, right? And therefore the links and da-da-da, you know, it's basically the source of their revenue. So firstly, I was like, okay, that's that's an interesting point. I would also say i have seen john Mueller say before and i haven't gone back to look on twitter you'll just have to take my word for it that <laughs> he said and i'm paraphrasing here because i don't have a perfect memory he said something along the lines of google will likely at some point have to go back and revisit the guidelines around ai content because you know my position as a user and this is completely outside of SEO, is as long as the content is answering my query, I don't care who or what wrote it. And there are lots of humans out there that write really shitty content <laughs> <laughs> that GPT-3 can do a better job of. And just to kind of demonstrate this, at the time this 
story came out, I saw someone on LinkedIn saying, Google recently mentioned that AI-generated content is against their guidelines. Um, they don't think there's a direct mechanism to track down AI content, uh, but even if an update gets rolled out somewhere down the line, da, 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 and they're asking this question about what do people think about AI-generated content. So I was like, I tell you what would be interesting. So I took their question and I pasted it into OpenAI's GPT-3 Q&A <laughs> model. And the answer it came up with was, Google has not provided any specific guidance on how to deal with AI-generated content. However, it is generally advisable to avoid publishing content that is not clearly attributable to a human author. If you do publish AI-generated content, you should make clear that the content was generated by a computer and not by a human author. And then they followed up on this and were like, thanks, what do you think about Jasper? And then a load of people liked it. Nobody, no human had picked up that this was a 100% AI written content. And I think as a, as you know, from an SEO point of view, I'd say I'm a subject expert. That's a decent answer. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so I, I saw, I saw it on LinkedIn before I heard your story and I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. That seems like the kind of thing Mark would say. It's it's detailed. It, it clearly explains to the person asking the question where it is, and it, it doesn't like you know. We often say, I don't know. We talked about um, GPT three fairly recently, having incredibly specific answers and being able to kind of play around with that and expand it. You can have just yes or no, or yes, that happened in nineteen sixty five, and it expands it a little bit and adds that almost like human element of sentence structure and stuff. That is totally believable to me, a hundred percent. The the follow on question John had was basically, can Google detect this AI generated content? And his answer was, I can't claim that. But for us, if we see something is automatically generated, then the web spam team can definitely take action on that. And I don't know how the future will evolve here, but I imagine like. With any of these technologies, there will be a little bit of a cat and mouse game where sometimes people do something that they can get away with and then the web spam team catches up and solves that on a broader scale. From our recommendation, we still see it as automatically generated content. Over time, maybe this is something that will evolve in that it will be, become more of a tool for people. Kind of like you would use machine translation as a basis for creating a translated version of a website but you would still work through it manually. And maybe over time, these AI tools will evolve in that direction that you see um, that you use them more and more to become efficient in your writing and make sure you're writing in a proper way, like we've got with kind of Grammarly spelling, uh, kind of checking grammar tools. It comes down to me, if a human can't detect whether it's written by a computer or not, I believe a machine will struggle. And I've had this conversation with some actual SEO experts that have said to me, the opposite is true. Because obviously computers are really, really, really good at pattern matching. It's kind of their thing, right? Way better than like mushy-brained humans, right? And from the people I know that experiment with this kind of stuff, they've had sometimes more success with really old school content spinning, which is taking... Um, words that were written by humans and just swapping out words because structurally it looks more human than stuff that was generated by a computer from scratch. Now, I don't think we're going to be there much longer in terms of I don't think they're going to be distinguishable um, because the answers that I see in most cases, obviously some sometimes it goes way off the rails, but in most cases the answers that 
GPT-3 gives and whatever, you know, GPT-4 holds for us are very, very impressive. And this, lastly, I'll round off by, I saw um, you tagged me in it. Someone else sent me um, a post by a very smart chap named Ferry on LinkedIn who was highlighting um, another website that he estimated was generating about £50,000 a month just by scraping people also ask featured snippets and kind of mashing them together on a page and sticking some YouTube videos in like not that technically advanced kind of scraping and um, kind of, of of long tail content which people have been doing for years but as I showed in the Brighton SEO talk I did about zero volume keyword research there are lots of sites that currently are having lots and lots of success and driving millions of visitors doing this which I think stems back to you know Google releasing BERT, releasing passage indexing, becoming better at understanding these queries, these very specific queries, they're now more attracted to content that has the specific answers on and are relying slightly less on some of their older, uh, you know, well-tested and still in play link metrics. Because it seems we have a new generation of kind of AI type spam that's working really well. So I think that's a whole minefield for Google. And I think it'd be incredibly dangerous for John Mueller to be like, yeah, AI content's fine. <laughs> that would really open the floodgates. Yeah, I'm sure he's he's not allowed to say that almost like there's a there's a Google executive there with a gun <laughs> to his back. Like, don't talk about AI content, John. Um, but yeah, I think also touching on what you just said and combining with what John said as well, it's the cat and mouse thing, right? We're always finding this, whether it's cybersecurity, like infotech people versus hackers or whether it's google trying to sort out spam stuff from their end of things there's always going to be people generating spammy nonsense and making money from it and clogging up for want of a better phrase the rest of the web and there's always going to be hackers that are breaking through and creating new issues for cybersecurity people and then companies often hire those people who then become the cybersecurity people who are then fighting the other hackers and da 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 and it's this kind of yeah all of like an Ouroboros snaking its own tail, if feedback loop, cat and mouse game where we're just going to be constantly battling spam versus Google, spam versus Google, AI generated spam versus Google. And yeah, I'm, I'm very, very intrigued to see where this is going because this is, this is clearly part of our future, right? Not to go off into a big like, you know, we will become one with the machines kind of matrix style tangent, but AI is getting more and more powerful seemingly by the day and like just you saying GPT-4 just then just struck a chord of like oh god that'll be <laughs> that'll be doing our jobs for us they'll be auto-generating podcasts and deep faking my voice and creating podcasts from scratch and I won't be required anymore and all this kind of stuff it's just yeah scary stuff but very interesting as well very very interesting with the kind of cat and mouse thing in mind, what I would like to see, because we have lots of AI kind of chatbots now on sites, is a chatbot for consumers where you can give it the goal. So, you know, uh, yeah, I'm having trouble with my broadband. I want to speak to a human. And then you can just load up their live chat and leave your AI to talk to their AI. And your <laughs> AI can just answer all their questions and get you to the human or or resolve, get the resolution that you want. So you can just have two computers talk to each other. Just be like, this is what I want. Um, this is what I'll settle for. Can you please go and negotiate that on my behalf? Because <laughs> um, we, we did see that with the, um, the Google AI that made the phone calls to do like the hair booking thing uh, a couple of years ago. 
so I, you know i'm interested where where that will go but um yeah that's where we are with ai content at the moment which i would say is a gray area you and john miller agree eh, yeah kind of gray area yeah. <laughs> it depends <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week on Monday, the 25th of April, with all the latest SEO and PPC news from Mark and I. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful week. Bye.